Well, I invite you to find page 1047 in the Sanctuary Bible and follow along as we read Luke 24, 13 through 35. Luke 24, 13. Today we're on our journey with Jesus again, our fifth journey with Jesus series. So after today, I think we'll have be halfway through this journey with Jesus. The goal is that even if you can't go on a trip to the Holy Land in person, you can go on a trip to the Holy Land virtually, in a way, by being here, sitting in the pews, and hearing about the places where Jesus walked and what it meant to the people he was with. And if you can go to the Holy Land, you can go to places like this and walk in the same places and experience it in a different way. But either way, you're here, and we invite you to on this journey with Jesus. And in this journey with Jesus, we, we are hoping that we can get a taste of what it was like to be next to the Savior to listen to him talk, to transport ourselves into that place. And so today, what's great is that we're actually on a journey with Jesus in the text. Jesus is walking somewhere, and it takes about two hours, with two people, and they don't even know it's him. They find out later that it's him. So it's an interesting journey with Jesus, sort of an unintended journey with Jesus. And today, the journey takes us to a town called Emmaus, and you've heard of Emmaus before because of this story. <clears throat> the question is, where is Emmaus? And the answer is, we don't know. We just don't know. There's about five places that are suggested as possible locations for Emmaus. That name doesn't exist sort of now in the present, and it, it got lost at some point. One thing we know from our reading, as you're about to read, is that uh, it says, in our translation, it says, Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So you could draw a circle. That kind of narrows it down. It's only, well, it's about 150 square miles. You'd have to try to figure out exactly. Well, maybe less than that. I did my math wrong. Pi r squared. Oh, dear. Well, uh, no, that's about right. That's about right. 150 square miles. Now, but what the text actually says is that the distance is 60 stadia. That's underneath it. And a stadia is the distance around the track at a Greek stadium, which is these, how these words are all connected. Our stadium growing up in high school, the stadium at my high school, was hundred. No, it was 400 yards around, right? So it was, is that right? For, for, for 440 yards, it was 400 meters around, yeah. But an, a Greek stadium was a little smaller. It was 600 feet around, so it was about one quarter that distance. And the Bible says that this town was 60 stadia away. So I did some math. 60 times 600 is 36,000 feet. You guys like that? Hmm? Pretty simple. Uh, calculators are nice. And then did you know that there's 5,280 feet in a mile? Some of you knew that. Before long, nobody will know that because you won't really need to know that. But I'm going to put that out there because I want that piece of data to stand for another certain amount of time. There's 5,280 feet in the mile. So if you divide 36,000 by 5,280, you get 6.818181. I, I, I could keep going, but that 81 just keeps repeating ad infinitum or ad nauseum, depending on how you feel right now. So 6.81 miles or 6.82 miles. Not, none of these measurements are exact, but that's why the NIV says that Emmaus is about seven. They rounded up. They said, Emmaus is a, you know, there's not a lot of decimals in the Bible. They say, they, say, they say things like about. So the 
Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so that narrows it down. And so one good guess we have is in the modern town of Abu Ghosh, which you could also call Emmaus. And if you take out the insert in your bulletin, I went low-tech this week because I thought, I don't want to try to project some pictures of the Holy Land and it not project. So do you all have that color printed on a high-quality Hewlett-Packard color laser printer? Yes, it was. No, no, no uh, fooling. And so at the top, you see the modern-day picture of Abu Ghosh. Put on your glasses. Sorry for the small. I tried to, you know, I had to, I had to squeeze it down. Uh, and below that, you see a picture of what's called the, the church, the interior of the Church of the Resurrection, aptly named because they think they built it on the spot where Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. All of this is a guess. If you had a scale of one to five, where five stars would be like, this absolutely happened here, and one was probably didn't happen here, this is a lot closer to a one or a two. But still, you can go to this place. You can go to Abu Ghosh, and you can visit this church. And at the bottom is the outside of the church, those tall walls, actually. And the reason is because this church was built by crusaders. Crusaders. People who went to the Holy Land and the thousands, 1,100, 1,200, and tried to reconquer the Holy Land for Christendom. And if you go to the Holy Land, you'll learn that there are many waves of people who have invaded this little patch of land. There are actually about 18 different distinct invasions over the course of about 3,000 years that have left behind architectural artifacts and also genetic artifacts. You will meet Palestinian Christians with red hair. They're descended from crusaders from Ireland, England, France, Germany. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. And so this is crusader architecture in Abu Ghosh is the Church of the Resurrection. So suspend some disbelief and imagine that in this place is where the final scene of what we're about to read takes place, where Jesus reveals himself to his two traveling companions. So with that, let's go to our reading, page 1047. Luke 24. And it says, now that same day, that same day is Easter Sunday. Later in the day, after Jesus appears to other people, he appears to two more people. He's got a busy day. It's like one of his busiest days yet. He rises from the dead. He appears to several people. Then he takes a long walk. Okay. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and may it burn in our hearts this morning. Amen. I love this phrase, we're not our hearts burning. We're not our hearts burning. What happened that day? On the same day as the resurrection, Jesus makes multiple appearances to all the people who need to know, and like all these other appearances at first, the people don't quite recognize Jesus. Here it's actually quite explicit. It says they were kept from recognizing him. There was something that God had to do first, something that had to happen to them first before they were allowed to recognize that it was truly Jesus. And they walk together for about seven miles. They they start out on the road and and a companion appears alongside them. (laughs) This is Jesus. This is Jesus kind of coming out of out of nowhere, coming, coming out unannounced, coming alongside them as they walk. And there's this great conversation along the way. Why are you so downcast? What do you mean, why are we so downcast? You must not be from around here, basically, is what they say. You have no idea what's been happening in our town. Our town's been turned upside down. And, and we've been followers of this guy, and we're beginning to realize now that he was a total fraud. Because how could he really be the Messiah if God could allow him to be crucified by the Roman soldiers? This is what they're thinking. They're really in the dumps. They are not in a good place. In fact, they're probably, even though they're walking, you could say they're running away. They're probably leaving town because the heat is up and they don't want to be around. Uh, They they think they might be next. I, I like to think of it as getting out of Dodge. You know, they're... Jerusalem was Dodge, then Emmaus was like a little prairie town where you could lay low for a while. So, then what happens, and you caught on to this, is as they walked along, he explains everything to them. And this is the part 
of the Bible where, like, you know, you say, what part of the Bible would you like to be present for, you know? This is the part of the Bible I would really like to have been there for, you know? Because you have a two-hour walk, that's a lot of time, and you're walking with the Master, and he's explaining on that walk how, in fact, you don't need to be discouraged right in this moment, but that God had a plan for all of this, including his death, including his suffering, including what appeared to be the biggest defeat of all time, how God actually foretold this all throughout and was going to use it to do something great in this world. And it was really, what it was, was an Old Testament lecture, unlike any Old Testament lecture anyone had ever really gotten before. Because that's what he does. He says, going through the scriptures, starting with Moses and the prophets, that's another way of saying almost all of the scriptures, what it leaves out is, is the writings, the Psalms and the Proverbs. Maybe Jesus didn't preach from the Psalms and Proverbs. He didn't have time. He only had two hours. So he did Moses and the prophets. That's the the five, first five books of the Bible, and then all the prophetic books, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, but also Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and all the rest of them. He said, here are all the places where God told you already that this was going to happen, that the Messiah was going to suffer and die. This is the place where it says this, that the Messiah was going to be a servant to the others, and a suffering one at that. And you can imagine, they're like, my mind is blown. Wow, Jesus. They didn't know it was Jesus. Who is this guy? We happen to be, uh, you know, we're, we're in the commuter lane, we're kind of going slow, and the car next to us is a Bible scholar, and he's talking to us through the window for two hours, and we just got this treatise on the Old Testament and how the Messiah really, that we thought was the Messiah, really is the Messiah. It just didn't look like we thought. We thought he was going to come in glory with angels and destroy a bunch of things. But it turns out he's going to come and be destroyed himself. And his death is going to be this fertilizer that's going to make grow something new in this world. And so they're just amazed by this. And so they, they really don't want... They don't want this lecture to end. They get to where they're going. And, and Jesus, um, who's not a tricky person, he's not a terribly tricky person, but he kind of wants people to choose the right thing. He acted like he was going to keep going. He's like, I'm going to, well, good talk. See you later. And, and what's great is these two disciples, and we only know the name of one of them, Cleopas. The other one is just like the place of Emmaus. We, we don't know who it is. We just don't know who it is. One of them's name is Cleopas. But both of them say, you know, they grab him by the tunic, because they, you know, they grab him by the tunic and say, stop, stay a while. Let's talk some more. You need to eat dinner, don't you? You need to, you know, you need to stay somewhere, don't you? And so if they hadn't done that, you know, it's almost like a little test. You say, I'm going to keep going. I'll see you later. Good one. Good talk. No, you may not go. You have to stay. You have to talk to us. And so I think Jesus is really delighted in that moment where they ask him to stay. I think there's a word for us in that too. I think Jesus is delighted when we ask him to stay and we ask him to keep telling us this story. So he stays and then what I think is actually one of the most 
beautiful parts of Scripture, and I keep saying that, and, and I can have 20 beautiful parts of Scripture that I think are the most beautiful. It's like Krista's grandma said, uh, Norma, she said, you're all my favorite grandkids, you know. You can have 16 favorite grandchildren. You're all my favorites. None of you is number one. Well, you're all number one. So this is number one among about 20 number one things, where Jesus takes the bread. And in that moment, he's like, imagine it, right? This is what I think happened. Our bread has been a little, it's been broken, it's been pre-broken, all right? But not pre-chewed, so that's good, all right? But here it is. And Jesus, he sits down with them. And he starts to pull the bread apart. And in the moment that it took from here to here, whatever it was that kept them from recognizing who he was was lifted. This is a supernatural thing. And I don't know what it was. Was it the prayer he said just beforehand? Was it how his lip curled up as he spoke to them? Was it his hands? or the way he did it, or the way his shoulders were. Something triggered something. I mean, I want you to be there, okay? It doesn't have to be in Abu Ghosh. It could be in actual Emmaus. Where that bread gets pulled apart, and suddenly the veil is lifted. And then, troubling but also beautiful, the moment they realize who he is, what a bummer, but there's a reason for this, he vanishes. What's with the resurrected Jesus? He kind of is, he's incarnated, he's still in the flesh, but he kind of has some special super abilities like going through locked doors, showing up out of nowhere, and in this case, disappearing into nowhere. Now you could just say that maybe he just actually got up and walked out. And they, these two were just so in, kind of like, whoa! And they just really didn't notice. But from their perspective, he just vanished from their sight. He's gone. And I think that's beautiful in a different way. Just as a side note, I think the reason for it is, and you can, you can have your own reason for it, and this is just my opinion. The reason for it is that Jesus gives us enough so that we go and do the things he asks us to do, but he doesn't stay so long that we mistake being with him for the actual destination. There's still work to do on this planet. And if we spend all our time just with Jesus, you know, we're not going to go out into the world. And this is why I like when he's at the top of the Mount of the Transfiguration. Peter says, well, let's build some houses up here and live in these nice houses with you and Elijah and Moses. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. You have to leave the mountaintop. You have to go somewhere else. If you read the books like uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? And Aslan the lion, he always leaves early. Right? He doesn't really stick around that long to hang out. Because there's work to be done in the world. There's work to be done in Narnia. Right? There's work that you, so Jesus is just like that. The moment they see him, the moment they realize, he vanishes from their sight. And that's beautiful, like I say, in its own way. And what do they do next? Of course, they do then what him leaving enables. They get right back up and they go back to Jerusalem, another two hours. I, I imagine they ran this time, so they cut. You can do a seven-minute mile, right? So I think they got back in an hour. That's my thinking. They're like, woo! They find the 11. Remember, there's only 11? You know why. Because one had, one had hanged himself to death. They find the 11. They said, it's true! 
all that stuff we heard earlier today, we saw him. And also one of the 11 are like, yeah, and Peter saw him too, right? So they're like, gosh, this is true. So, um, the question though, is the where I want to live a little bit this morning. Were not our hearts burning? Were not our hearts burning when we walked with him, when he opened up to us the scriptures? And I want you to think a little bit more, just in a moment, and, and just take, we'll take a, just a tiny bit of silence, but ask yourself to remember that time when you heard the scriptures or you heard the gospel and something began to stir inside of you. Now, I hope it happens every week, but I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to myself, right? I hope it happens every week here. I hope it happens when you read the Bible on your own. It may have been a while since that has happened, but I pray it happens. And I'm going to pray that it happens today as well. But there's something unique about scripture. There's something unique about the gospel. It is so different than anything else in this world. And I do believe that it causes something to stir and move and catch on fire inside of you. I want you to capture that moment right now. I'm just going to take a second and not say anything. Capture that moment when the word caught fire inside of you. And I want to say something about that moment. You know, it's not, it's not very scientific. It's very subjective, right? It's the kind of thing an atheist would point to and they'd say, well, that doesn't prove anything. You felt something when you heard something? That's, that's not quantifiable or measurable in any particular sense. And they would say something like, you could feel the same way listening to great music or a great speech. You could feel that way when you fall in love, and you could feel that way when you eat chocolate, right? It's all about endorphins. And there's no doubt, I think endorphins play a role even when you hear the scriptures, because it's exciting. It's exciting what God wants to do in the world, and does in the world, and does for us. There's no doubt that this is subjective. It's just for you, but that's okay. If it's just for you, then you know it's real for you. If the fire burns inside you when you hear the gospel, it doesn't matter if an atheist can explain it or quantify it. It's true, and God is at work in you. But you know what? I think, and this is just me talking, there is a difference, a different quality to that burning I feel inside of me when I hear the Scripture, and it's different than eating chocolate. And I love chocolate. I love chocolate. I really do. I love I don't love exercising, but when I do exercise and I feel that, I love that feeling, but I don't like what it takes to get there. I love falling in love, and I'm still in love. Praise God, right? I love hearing good music. I love listening to great speeches. All of those can create that feeling, but the feeling I get when Scripture is read, when Scripture is explained, when the gospel is proclaimed, it's different. It's unique in all the world. There's nothing like the gospel in all this world. I can't explain it any other way. You have to look at it to try to figure out why that is, but it's different. It's completely unique in all of the world. 
I want you to think about these two, what it took to start a fire in them, right? They're leaving town. This is how I would put it. Their fire had been blown out. Water had been dumped on the ashes. Then somebody took about 50 pounds of ice and put it on top of that. And then they coated the whole thing with asbestos. That was their heart on the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Can you start a fire with that? Jesus can, right? They'd seen their hopes crucified, and they'd wondered what they had done uh, <clears throat> with the last three years of their life. So like, what have we been up to? We have totally wasted our lives on this guy. And they're running away for safety, and there was nothing like a fire inside them, but they heard the word explained to them by Jesus in the Old Testament about how all these things were pointing to the Messiah, revealing the true nature of God, and the fire was lit again. Now, if a fire can be lit in those people's hearts, it can be lit in our hearts over and over and over again. No matter how difficult life gets, and this is my solace, my comfort, is no matter how difficult life gets, we always have the word. No matter how much the fire gets put out, and it gets put out, we have the word that can ignite it. We have the word that can set it on fire. And, and I don't want to exaggerate too much, but I feel like the word is almost all that we have from Jesus. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. We have many things from Jesus. But the record, the things that tell us about Jesus, all we have is the Word. We have some traditions that have been passed on through history, but we don't have any real artifacts. There, we can't find, I mean, some people claim they have pieces of the true cross. We were talking at the men's lunch this week, and there's enough pieces of the true cross in Europe that you could build a house out of it. So none of them, either, not all of them are the real, real cross, and probably none of them are, because... It's just gone. You can't find the tablets that God wrote on personally with his hand. You can't find them. You can't find the Ark of the Covenant. It'd be fun to. I was just watching the, that movie the other night, the Steven Spielberg movie uh, with Krista. It was on one of the shows, uh, one of the channels. I'm like, this is a fun movie. And they find the Ark, right? Well, not really. We don't have artifacts. We don't have these things. We only have this trip and things like it that tell us about the nature of God. We have the Word. And the other thing we'd have, this is the other, only other thing, and I'm, I'm saying only loosely here, this is exaggeration, is we have the breaking of the bread that in that moment reveals to us all, who it was that was speaking. It's powerful stuff. And so I think about the church, and what do we have? We have the Word being proclaimed from the pulpit, right? And we have the bread being broken up here on the altar. And as a church, we're being faithful to what God wants us to do in the world if at a minimum we're doing these things. We're proclaiming the word so that the fire gets started and we're breaking bread together as a sign of our unity, as a sign that we want to be fed with heavenly food and have God enter into our lives and, and change us and make us new people. And we break bread together as a sign of community with each other where we live together together in harmony and in peace, and have an outward witness of who we are together as a body. So that's what we have. We have table fellowship, which we took time for today, and we have the word that tells us about it and commands us to do it. 
and sets us on fire. Now, I want to ask, where does this leave us today? Where, where does all this great story about this trip to Emmaus leave us today? I want to say a prayer for us later, in just a minute. But what I think is that God wants to reveal Jesus to you today. In the breaking of the bread, in the word, in the gospel preached, in the news about the resurrection. And, and he does it through his word. He brings you hope. He points you to his son. And when you hear that word, the power of the resurrection dawns on you and you see that God is the master of bringing life out of death and, and victory out of defeat and, and hope out of hopeless situations. God does that. And the meal is where it all comes clear. For the disciples, it must have been something Jesus did. You know, how was it that he broke that bread just then? The movement of his hands as he tore it apart and served it to them. Jesus is with us now. He's always with us. And he's revealing himself in places where we don't expect to find him. I, I think that's really great that we don't know where Emmaus is. We can't pin it down exactly. Because a lot of that Emmaus story is about we didn't know who this was who was walking with us until the end. We can't pin this thing down and it won't stay forever. It tells us to leave again. I don't want us to be tempted to live in Emmaus for too long if we were to stay there or visit there. But it can happen anywhere. Jesus could do this to you today. So I want to pray for us that your hearts will burn, not just today, but every day, as you read and hear the word, and that the fire inside of you will give you the energy to go back to the town the town outside these doors, and proclaim the risen Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, in this body today, no doubt we have those among us, and even myself at times, where the fire goes out, where hope dwindles, where pessimism is strong about this world and about our faith, where we could say, Lord, I just haven't seen you lately. I haven't seen you at work. I haven't seen your hand in my life. And Lord, I'm depressed. And Lord, I'm so far from you. Lord, I pray for each of us this moment that you would use your word and that you would use the breaking of the bread together in the body that we have to set on fire things that have gone out and to kindle into flame some embers that are just sitting on the side at the moment, that they be fanned into this mighty flame that burns and consumes and purifies and gives us the energy to go out into Mountain View and Los Altos and Cupertino and Sunnyvale and beyond with your word about your son who's been raised from the dead. Set us on fire today, we pray. Amen.